0: And thanks for listening. This is Climate One, I'm Arianna Brocious. The 27th International Climate Summit, known as the Conference of Parties, or COP, takes place next month in Egypt. If you haven't listened to our other show from this week, Countdown to COP27, Feeling the Heat, I'd recommend starting there, to get a fuller scope of what we can expect nations to focus on. In this special episode, we're airing our full-length version with Yael Albumad. Egypt's ambassador to Brazil, and the special representative of the COP27 president. He joined us from Cairo. Here's Climate One host, Greg Dalton.
1: So the Paris Agreement requires every country to declare their own nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, for reducing emissions. Last year at COP26 in Glasgow, it became clear that even the updated targets would at best limit warming to 2.4 degrees Celsius, almost a full degree above the 1.5-degree goal. So governments decided to give themselves another year to revisit and strengthen their targets. Here we are. What are you seeing about those goals?
2: Well, as you rightly said, they're called NDCs, so they happen to be nationally determined contributions. So as you rightly said, we're still not on track to keep the target the temperature goal of the Paris Agreement alive, uh, the 2 degrees and hopefully the 1.5 target. Um, so as incoming presidency, what we were able to do and continue to do is to press everyone, to encourage everyone to update their NDCs. And that was part of the decision coming out of Glasgow, inviting countries uh, who already have presented their NDCs and aren't due for a number of years to have their second NDC out to update their NDCs. Egypt, hopefully led by example, we updated our own NDCs showed much more uh, ambition and we're asking everyone else to do it. So that's on the legal obligation sort of side of things. But on on the other hand, there are multiple pledges and challenges going out to various sectors. For example, you had the methane pledge, which came out of Glasgow. and You have other initiatives um, by various sector leaders and, and private businesses. Those are also making contributions. So that collectively will hopefully add to whatever is in the NDC. So the measure I'm trying to say, the measure isn't only what's in the NDCs. Of course, that's the quantified one and the legal structure part, but there are other parts as well. And then you also have um, issues that came out such as the jet peas, the Just Energy Transition Partnerships, that first model that we all heard of was the one made in South Africa. So there are, uh, let's say parallel tracks, the legal one, but also a lot of action on the ground to complement or supplement the, the legal track and that's what in our uh, prerogative or authority as incoming presidency that we can do we continue to urge we've been calling one-on-one quietly with uh, various countries encouraging them a to update the NDC and b most importantly that update should be very ambitious.
1: Right. So we're seeing some sectoral approaches. You might also put Kigali ratification in the U.S. and other countries in there. Russia's war on Ukraine is roiling energy markets in Europe and globally. Is there a risk that countries are using that war and the resulting disruptions in energy markets to delay action or switch back to dirtier fuels as gas prices rise?
2: That's a legitimate concern. Many have expressed it in the media and society. And Even within government circles, there is this concern that the crunch, the energy crunch and the rise in prices uh, or availability, lack of availability, obviously, of of, uh, energies, particularly in Europe, will encourage people to go back because they need to meet their immediate needs. We've been uh, telling everyone none of this should be used as a pretext for backtracking or backsliding on pledges and commitments. And we've heard and we have to take people for their word on this matter, especially coming out of Europe, that they are still on track for their targets, and this is a very temporary measure that they need to to take. Uh, But of course, you're absolutely right in insisting, and we are also insisting, that this should not be a pretext. Not only that, but you mentioned this, the the consequences of the war in the Ukraine on the energy market. There's impacts on the food supply and markets, and there's uh, on fertilizers. But also, we're still all, all of the world is in effect in the aftermath of a post-pandemic situation where recovery hasn't been even across the board. And also, many countries are still under threat of slowdowns and even recessions. So so it's a complicated conflation of a variety of challenges under which this COP is taking place. The flip side of it is, I think there is a very broad conviction that nothing climate will not wait for us, there is no time to waste, and that every measure delayed is a measure that is going to be that much more difficult to implement and multiple times more expensive to implement. So I think there is this general recognition of the urgency and that time is of the essence that we need to move forward.
1: As you mentioned, in July, Egypt updated its own plan to reduce in emissions. But in August, Climate Action Tracker rated Egypt's actions, quote, highly insufficient, noting that even under its most recent targets, Egypt's emissions will increase by around 50 percent above today's levels by 2030. So what is Egypt doing to address this, especially as it plays that leadership role and host, as you've noted?
2: Well, there are there are two ways of looking at this, in the raw figures and making that claim. But at the other hand, this is ignoring the reality of the climate realm in its totality. Developing countries are entitled to continue to grow until they peak, because developed countries had already peaked and started way back even in 1990, after consuming all the carbon space that we all are supposed to be sharing. So as developing countries are struggling with debt, struggling with poverty, struggling to meet their legitimate sustainable development objectives, the legal framework is tailored to ensure that developing countries are not supposed to starve to meet these targets. So if they look at it from that way, they can make that claim. But the reality is the system is structured to compare not what we're doing with what they anticipate, but what we are doing with a business as usual scenario. So if you compare to the business as usual scenario, you'll find significant reductions. Lastly, on this point, and this doesn't only apply to Egypt, many, I dare say most developing countries are entitled and actually have linked their ability to fulfill these NDCs with the availability of support because countries cannot do it on their own without financial technology and capacity support. So that's another caveat to a lot of the developing country NDCs that realism requires that we take into consideration because many of these countries who made less than 0.0001 contribution to the situation we are in, are at this moment struggling with multiple developmental challenges and they need to find the right balance with doing their fair share in the global effort to combat climate change while also not starving their people and providing the means they need for elimination of poverty.
1: There's no doubt that most of the carbon up there is red, white, and blue, which means it's American and British and and Russian and French, uh, for sure, uh, and un- equal and unjust situation and the goal we know is to decouple economic growth from carbon emissions and if you're saying that's not possible that seems to be saying that fossils are still cheaper these days when we hear a lot in the west that that clean energy is the cheapest wind and solar wind in the marketplace because they're so cheap right now but is that not the case if you're saying we need fossils because it's we need assistance because fossils are still cheaper renewables are still more expensive
2: absolutely not no 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 you're up, and you're right in, in the fact that, uh, I mean, solar, I think alone has dropped by about 80% compared to just a few years ago. You're absolutely right. But it's not just a matter of pulling a plug from fossils and plugging in um, uh, solar or wind or, or other renewables. There are infrastructure requirements. There are uh, retiring existing long-term investments that exist. There are grid upgrades. There are multiple areas that developing countries, if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, you'll hear the actual story. That's why we're launching one of our initiatives. I don't want to jump the gun and go to the initiatives, but one of them is just energy transition for Africa because that is a very particular case. I think it may be similar to other developing countries, but the reality remains that it's not just simple. We'd love everyone to leapfrog from, you know, where uh, others started to renewables immediately, but there is a process that has to take place Uh, to ensure that this happens. And and it's not just a choice issue, but it is a matter of the infrastructure available and the the grid, as I mentioned, and many other factors. But the full commitment is there. Everyone wants to do it. And that's why I mentioned in NDCs, they are conditional. We're going to hit this target of renewables by this date, but we need the support to move from one area to the other. Last point here, that's exactly what happened in South Africa. It is a transition. It's $8.5 billion, mostly in loans and concessional loans, but maybe some grant component. I'm not familiar with the full details, but it acknowledges that you can't just move from coal overnight. You needed that amount. Without that amount, it wouldn't have happened in South Africa and will be very difficult to happen elsewhere.
1: Well, let's go to that, you know, the broader meaning of this being uh, held on the African continent and Egypt in particular.
2: Well, I should say, first and foremost, this is a UNFCCC intergovernmental process where it's a cop for everyone. But you're absolutely, again, right here in that the very fact that it is happening in an African country, which is familiar with the priorities, the needs, the challenges of the continent, that allows us as incoming presidency, particularly in the part that we uh, have some discretion in determining, which is the action agenda. Uh, The negotiations are negotiations, no matter where they happen. And you can't change that geographically, Uh, you know, wherever you are geographically, it will continue to be country-owned, country-driven by everyone in the process. But your point, to your point, it is uh, the familiarity of the challenges of the continent that enables the host country, in this case, Egypt, to tailor many of its initiatives for the needs and the challenges of the continent. So this is where you will definitely see some more emphasis on African needs, particularly the area of, of adaptation, um, but also on finance.
1: We like to talk about, uh, you know, humans and systems here on Climate One. So what climate impacts are you personally seeing in Egypt?
2: First and foremost, water, 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 particularly because Egypt is a very, very arid country. We rely on one source for uh, more than 95 percent of our home use, agriculture, industry, everything depends on the River Nile. So any disruptions caused by climate change in rainfall, in vaporization, many, many other aspects, just in the area of water resource management is a problem for us. Second, we rely heavily on agriculture. Egypt is a country of 100 100 million people that need to be fed. We have uh, the Nile Delta, which we rely on, of course, but we import a lot uh, of of food products as well. So food, uh, food security, water security are two issues where the impacts are most evident. Third, of course, rise of sea levels. I just mentioned the Nile Delta, which is one of the highest density areas on earth. And you have about 50% of the Egyptian population living in that triangle, the Nile Delta. Uh, so the rise of the Mediterranean by, by even a fraction of a centimeter means salinization and acidification. And, and, uh, and that, that you can just imagine the impacts on the economic and social and, and other impacts that this would have on a very highly dense part on the livelihoods of everyone living there not to mention the food security aspects. So those are just to mention a few.
1: Last year, the COP presidency had a goal of consigning coal to history. Since then, the global use of coal has actually gone up and is set to return to an all-time high. Egypt doesn't burn much coal, but what lessons do you take from COP26 in Glasgow that inform how to proceed this year in Sharm el-Sheikh? The
2: reality of... All multilateral diplomacy is, and particularly in this process, is that it it is a consensus-based process where you can imagine the need to find alignment between 190 sovereign states. It's not an easy task. And any single country has the ability to say, you know what, I'm not comfortable going at this pace on this issue or that, not just on coal. We uh, we were all there, of course, and we we saw the issue of uh, phasing out versus phasing down and all of that. And it is, of course, something to be lamented that the, the the use of coal has increased. I haven't seen the exact figures where it has increased and who caused the increase. increase so I, I'm not going to attribute responsibility to anyone in particular, but you mentioned earlier on uh, what's happening in Europe. And we're hoping, uh, and I hope after this, if I go back and look at the figures available, that'll just be a spike caused by this emergency situation, which we all hope will not be lasting much longer. But again, to the broader picture, all fossil fuels have to have a plan. And that's why one of our main events that we've added this year is a decarbonization day, where we will talk about the biggest emitters in industry. Um, basically, you have your cement, you have your fertilizers, you have your steel, and of course, oil and gas, to see who are the best people in the world who are decarbonizing. What are the governments and 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 private sector entities, as well as financial institutions, not to mention the industries themselves, doing to actually decarbonize. So we, we have to have a closer look at this. It's a full day, morning to night, dedicated to just this decarbonization issue. And of course, coal is, 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 is in the midst of all of that.
1: The death of coal has been heralded many times and it always seems to come clawing back. Um, cop 27 is being framed as the implementation cop with a stated goal of moving from negotiations and planning to implementation. Does that mean things are going to go even slower than they have recently? Because implementation is hard. No, actually,
2: I'll surprise you with some good news. The, the pace at which multilateral negotiations go forward is the slowest imaginable simply because you're seeking the lowest common denominator that will enjoy the support of 190 sovereign states with varying interests and understandably so. So we're not kidding ourselves. We are part of this and we know how it works. The action agenda, the implementation side, doesn't suffer from that ailment because you don't require every single entity or or government to come on board. So when with the methane pledge, for example, which is an implementation tool, obviously, and other initiatives that we'll be launching. You're welcome to join. If you don't like it, don't come. But we'd like everyone to come on board. So you're not waiting for the 190 disparate views to come on board. You're willing to start with the few who are convinced that this is something they are willing to commit to. And you can use that and compare with a number of the initiatives that we're launching. We're launching something on, um, agriculture something on water resource management. We have something dedicated to Africa. We have a very successful social security kind of program for industries and multiple people who are affected by climate change that we're scaling up. It's been implemented in Egypt, it's called Decent Life. And this is being scaled up for Africa and we're presenting it. There's a waste management initiative. Waste management is of course an environmental issue, but it also has emissions. Uh, sides to it. so uh, And that's for Africa as well. So there are a number of initiatives. These are all action-oriented. That's why we call it the action agenda. And that is the definition or more the implementation of the implementation uh, narrative that we're talking about.
1: That action costs money, and yet investment tends to go to countries that need it least because they're perceived to be less risky. So what could be done to encourage private capital flows to be directed to fuel that implementation you're talking about?
2: You're, you're again, spot on um, on the finance side. But in tailoring all of our action agenda aspects, we did nothing alone. We held workshops and seminars in Cairo in our building here, for the MDBs, for private sector, and for governments from around the world. We had two or three rounds of these talks, and we tweaked and fine-tuned some of the uh, narratives that we were creating to ensure the broadest buy-in by as many partners from outside governments. Of course, there, you have the beneficiary governments, but you want the development partners in the developed world to come on board. You want the MDBs to be there, and you want private business to come in. But to your point, there is a problem with global climate finance. I'll set aside what is under negotiation, the $100 billion. You've heard that. We're looking at the new collective quantified goal for post-2025, a doubling adaptation, all that that came out of Glasgow. I'll still call it the realm of the multilateral negotiations. But the reality, the figures out there are disturbing, to say the least. The amount of climate finance now coming from private has exceeded public, clearly. And the reality that you just pointed to is fully accurate in private business is defined by seeking profit. So there are opportunities and the overwhelming percentage of private business goes to be invested A, in developed countries and B, in mitigation efforts, which is fine, that is good. We we need to reduce emissions. But what is the flip side of that is that adaptation is completely starved of private investment. And this threshold or yardstick of bankable projects that everyone is preaching to the world just doesn't apply to adaptation or very, you need to stretch your definition of adaptation to find a project in protecting Egypt's delta from the rise of sea level where uh, there is a profitable project. So we need to find a formula that ensures that whatever non-profit-driven monies are focused more on the adaptation side. I had this conversation, was it in, a couple of weeks ago, with philanthropies, the world's largest philanthropies were there. And I told them, you guys are not there in it for profit. You're benevolent, you are noble, you want to make a difference. Yet, A, and these are figures from the US in particular, about 2% of all US giving is going to climate. Okay, that's number one. Number two, whatever money is going to climate is going to climate in the US, in the country of source. Three, it's not going to adaptation. I, I looked at charts that are identical to those of the private sector. And I thought, you know, you guys should be the flip side of the private sector. You should be going to where the need is most and no one else is going and say, I'm making a difference. But if your philanthropy money goes to where the private money goes, it's a drop in an ocean because you're you're a fraction of a fraction of what is being uh, available, becoming available from the private sector. So why not increase the impact by going where you guys, they could unlock technologies. We didn't mention technology, finance is important, but to to move to renewables or to adapt, technology is key. And you mentioned it with the price, when the price dipped of renewables, that's when Egypt started building our, one of the world's largest solar farms. If the prices had not dipped, we wouldn't have been able to set those targets. So philanthropy is private money. That's part of the finance.
1: I believe that's starting to change. Uh, Loreen Powell Jobs created a $3 billion spend-down foundation over 10 years. It's aimed at climate justice. Some of that's international. But yeah, take your point that a lot of um, spending is toward mitigation, which clearly creates a revenue stream. You know, you're know, you generating electricity, probably, whereas a seawall or a uh, marsh or something like that doesn't generate income that attracts private capital. You said that we need to come up with creative ideas for financing climate action adaptation for the reasons you just cited. So what are some examples of creative ideas for funding climate adaptation other than philanthropy that you've just cited?
2: Well, there has to be a revisiting. I, I can say this. I mean, other people are going to be negotiating these issues, so I don't want to go into that territory and prejudge their outcomes. But what we've heard from many people, for example, MDBs, Multilateral Development Banks, and, and, and those are many but they have shareholders and shareholders have to speak to the the administration of those fund uh, banks. You can't, and these are not my words, Secretary Kerry and I think Franz Timmermans from the EU and others use pretty much the same language. You can't try to to work like a triple A financial institution. You are development banks and you need to adjust to a reality of a world where climate is the existential threat to humanity and they need to be less risk averse. They need to shift their thinking to address the actual needs in many of the countries that they're working in. Also, the issues of uh, de-risking have to be a big part of it. You mentioned getting loans and and, and moving forward. It it, it is not that easy, especially with the debt crisis in many developing countries. So there are creative ideas. I don't want to get into too many of them because some of them are are under negotiation, in fact, uh, in
1: Shamashay. There's been a lot said recently about the World Bank, uh, the biggest MDB, multilateral development bank, not doing enough. And though that bank, uh, what would you like to see from the World Bank?
2: Well, the World Bank is, is is a great institution. They're doing amazing poverty elimination work around the world. So I wouldn't want to say anything negative about them. They have a very very effective program in Egypt, and this is beyond the climate realm. Uh, and most recently, we've engaged with with very very senior leadership in the bank, and they've been very forthcoming, and I'm, I'm supposed to get back to them right now. They're offering a lot of help to us with regard to COP. So I think there is a realization within the bank um, of the importance of, of issues of climate and that, that it is inevitable that they move forward a little bit more uh, aggressively on the issue of climate than than has been the case in the past.
1: You and your country tried to put loss and damage at the center of this international conference, uh, yet rich countries are reluctant to put money into loss and damage because of possibly liability concerns. Are there alternative mechanisms that would make loss and damage payments more palatable? Uh, for example, sometimes when this comes up domestically, there's like a liability shield. We'll make, you know, give some money, but you can't sue us for our past sins, that sort of thing.
2: Right. Right. You, you described it well i think the world has moved beyond the liability roadblock that was been some that has been something over the years that held back the conversation um, the last days of glasgow were not uh the most pleasant for those who prioritize the issue of loss and damage people left with a bitter taste in their mouths uh, i should say I, I was literally in the room with many of the small islands and i could you could sense the frustration at the delay and procrastination and, and that, that happened and even in bond as recently as the subsidiary bodies meeting which is the halfway point between cops uh that took place last june uh, there it was unpleasant i can't we can't we don't want to take too much credit but after bond we held what i think was a very very helpful meeting of the heads of delegation there's something called HODs. it's an internal informal process within the climate change uh, arena whereby heads of delegation, representing the highest technical level in every government to come together in an informal setting, no obligations, nothing, let's have a conversation, a serious one. We held a two or three day meeting here in Cairo uh, just a few weeks ago, and the stars aligned. I don't want to take credit. We were smart. We were great. I don't know. It was, things just came together and people genuinely listened to each other. No one was denying the suffering. It We have multiple parts of the negotiation process. One of them is something called the Santiago Network, but that's essentially about building capacity. Uh, The main point, of course, is financing, finding funds to help countries. Um, So I think we've made some progress, at least in the area of, I can't speak for anyone or say that this is final, but we have a good feeling about having an agenda item. We have no agenda item on the agenda to discuss the financing aspects of loss and damage. So we're inching closer. That was a very good meeting. Nothing is done until it's actually done. So we'll see that on the 6th of November at the adoption of the agenda. But I think we are in a significantly better place than we've ever been on that front. You said that we prioritized it. Issues prioritized themselves. (laughs) We don't get to choose. So last year, just because it was the last piece of the puzzle, it was Article 6 because it was the last part of the Paris Agreement. So everyone was talking, all the questions, all the media I did. No one was talking about anything but Article 6 as if there's no other thing. Loss and damage is central because it's important and there's a realization of how sensitive and important it is to many impoverished countries who've done very, I dare say, nothing to cause their predicament. So it is uh, one of the main issues, but that doesn't mean we're not going ahead full steam on the mitigation work program on the adaptation, the global law on adaptation, of course, on the finance items.
1: Right, we've all seen the horrifying images out of Pakistan, uh, which is just, just, yeah, it's painful to even talk about. What does a just transition mean to you, and how is that being worked into the framework and the negotiations?
2: I think this is a sort of a, a, a principle that has emerged and has become acceptable, that no one, and can do anything overnight by decree, that everything has to be a transition, and that's logical, obviously, but it also has to be just because there are many details involved. A transition in the United States will not be the same as a transition in Greece or one in Chad. So justice as a notion is something that most people, most reasonable people would agree has to be a component. And many lament that the process is not completely just one and that's why the notion of equity also you hear a lot echoing in in these uh, discussions so it has to be a just transition because if you're talking about a net small net import uh, exporter of gas let's take Suriname or Guyana in the north of South America very very underdeveloped countries with uh, significant social and, and economic problems and you tell them you know what you guys found some gas off your coast but that has to stay you know under soil when when other countries have built fortunes and um, sovereign funds that will allow six generations not to work if they didn't want to and still live off the planet essentially. So that's the justice notion, that we have to take into consideration multiple factors if we are going to ask these people to make that contribution. And the value of the the amount of stranded assets to them is the difference between continued poverty. So if we're going to ask them not to, there has to be a mechanism, a just mechanism, collectively to bear the burden of keeping this underground. Um, this is the notion of justice that I think most reasonable people will accept has to be the foundation for a transition.
1: Well, let's apply that to uh, Brazil. You are also a Egypt's ambassador to Brazil. There's a very important presidential election underway. I read an article in Bloomberg recently that said that uh, Bolsonaro and Lula da Silva actually are not as far apart as They're far apart politically, but when it comes to the Amazon, they're not as far as uh, people might think. So what's at stake in that election? I know you can't uh, meddle in the domestic politics of the country where you represent Egypt. However, there are global stakes here.
2: There are global stakes because everyone acknowledges that um, the Amazon is, is part of the lungs of this planet and that it is a sink and that it is sort of the flip side of emissions, basically. And there are expectations of every government to to be responsible, to act responsibly, and to maintain the forests. I don't want to get into the details because there are counter-arguments put forward by various parties. It is a very sensitive issue inside Brazil, and it is an international issue in Brazil's relations, obviously, with many countries. The elections are, of course, an internal affair for for Brazil. You had the the first round with, uh, with two candidates closer than people anticipated. There will be a runoff on the 30th. But there have also been changes in parliament and in the governments leaning towards right. So it's going to be a a delicate balance in Brazil moving forward. But I think there is a general recognition that the Amazon is a big issue for the world and that there has to be an accommodation, understanding and support for Brazil in this regard to ensure that this global uh, asset is maintained as uh, pristine as possible.
1: You've talked about industry moving ahead, which doesn't require consensus. It can be voluntary action. What initiatives are you most excited about or hopeful that might lead to signed binding agreements?
2: We'd love to see everything signed and binding, but none of this is actually signed and binding unless it's a cooperation, uh, you know, between a specific country and an entity. Um, I think green hydrogen is creating a lot of excitement. It has a lot of potential. Um, it's still an emerging market, and I hope that it remains an open and free level playing field kind of market, because we're seeing some distortions that might affect this global market. But this is something that Egypt, in particular, is paying a lot of attention to because of the potential there. Because we, uh, we have the ability to be a hub for export of, uh, of green hydrogen, we have the ability to produce more renewables to make it green, and we are very, uh, uh, very close to Europe, which has uh, a clear need for clean energy. Uh, so, so we see the potential there and the advantage, relative advantages that we have. So, this is creating a lot of excitement. I don't want to preempt anything, but there will be a significant announcement of a launch of something happening in Egypt on green hydrogen. Um, so, this is one positive area. There's something else. It's not related to emissions, but it goes back to the point on loss and damage. There's something many of you may have been hearing about. It's called the Global Shield. It's an initiative on loss and damage. It's a combination, in fact, of measures to assist countries um, avoiding the liability conversation. And Germany took it to the G7, which was, I think, at first reluctant. Now it's been embraced. And I even heard the G20 is coming on board. So this is something else we're excited about. To see, it's a partial solution. doesn't address the complex, full array of issues under loss and damage. But I think it is an important, impactful thing. And this is what I was mentioning, the implementation side. Some insiders in this process use the term inside-outside. There are some solutions that come from the inside of the multilateral process. And there are other things that come out from the outside. So what we're mentioning now is the outside component. And I think the outcome and definition of success of any company, if you look at um, Glasgow, you'll see that the outside was very important. That's what caught a lot of headlines, even maybe more, maybe much more than the inside. So what matters to people is not inside or outside. Show me the money. Show me something. Show me something that will make a difference in my life tomorrow or next year.
1: And that outside can also be construed as civil society, pressure on companies, shareholders, et cetera. You know, Egypt is a place where that kind of uh, pressure is is highly constrained, you know, uh, in civil society. So what, what is that going to mean for the implementation where that kind of, you know, protests are a different thing in Glasgow uh, and Sharm el-Sheikh?
2: Okay. You did it in a very diplomatic way. I'll be more blunt in my answer. <laughs> um, The the civil society, when we speak of uh, here uh, to to your initial point before the uh, protests and, and that aspect of it, in every step of the way, bar, of course, the negotiations, because those are not ours, they're country driven. Every one of our initiatives, every part of our 11 thematic days, which I'll mention in a minute, was not done by us alone. There was a civil society organization, of course, relevant to the theme. If it's water, it was water related if it was whatever. So nothing was done without their presence. We also have an exclusive thematic day all day, morning to night, just for civil society organizations. But to your point about the openness and the availability, I use the word stakeholders because it's not just a not-for-profit organization that is involved. It could be an industry leader, it could be a private sector, it could be, you name it. So we include the stakeholders across the board. What you're talking about are uh, the protesters who want to put pressure on someone. Those have their realm, those have their place. We've heard it all. I heard it before Katowice, I heard it before Madrid, I heard it before Glasgow, and we're hearing it again right now. But they can make allegations, I should provide you with facts. I think we've gone further than anyone else that I know of in ensuring meaningful, impactful participation by anyone who wants their voice heard, or to contribute to being part of a solution. I can go through a list of measures that we've taken, specific measures to ensure that. I've heard things about the number of organizations allowed to participate. Why is Egypt doing this? Egypt has nothing to do with the organizations that participate. You have to be accredited to the UNFCCC. Every single one of the accredited entities, I have some figures I can share with you, 1,800 accredited NGOs and 100 IGO observers. These nominated 35,000 participants already. Okay. Of these, there are going to be 9,800 access badges to the conference. We don't handle that. We don't come. That is the UNFCCC. But what did we do? We realized that civil society organizations, again, this is the North-South divide. Do you know how many of those, whatever number... 1800 NGOs are Egyptian, one. And African, uh, 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 a very tiny number. So civil society is effectively, essentially, developed country civil society. We tried and we reached out. We uh, got something. There's a system within the UN that allows you to do single cop accreditation. So while organizations from Egypt, Africa, the, the global south are applying for the, you know, it takes a couple of years to get accredited with the UN. But we did, what we did was we got accreditation for 34 new Egyptian organizations. And for 20, we sent out to our embassies all over Africa, actually soliciting from them. We told them, ask your local organizations that want to participate. We are offering you this one time, you know, registration. So that's something else we did. We've created what will probably be the largest ever green zone for your audience who don't know the difference. The blue zone is a zone that has the negotiators and it has some pavilions of the member states, plus some offices. The green zone is free for all, open. You have to pay if you wanna have a booth built for you, but that is, we've doubled its size. And I think I've attended six or seven last cops. You'd have to take a small, a short bus ride or whatever, or walk for 15 minutes. Ours is across the street, basically, from the blue zone to make life easy. And then I mentioned a whole thematic day exclusively for civil society. There is not one session that will not have civil society organizations represented. Even, and we didn't mention the heads of state section. We have six round tables and there will be a civil society organization represented with the heads of state and with CEOs and with presence of MDPs at the same table. So we're doing anything and everything in our capacity, yet every now and then I hear, oh, they're barring this and that. Protests. There's an area for protests. There's a a coordination happening as we speak to ensure that there is an area for protest. Of course, all this is subject, A, to the rules and regulations of the UN system. I don't think anything is in the blue zone. I'm not sure, this is not my area. This is the Secretariat people and their security. They take over the venue by law, by the host country agreement. Uh, But there are arrangements to allow for peaceful protest, of course, within the, the requirements of our laws or any country's laws. Your, your you know peaceful behavior, time, location, all that. But I, I can't see any reason for those allegations, except that it's maybe people who have an interest in this issue and that's legitimate, They're, that's fine. It's a free world, they can raise those issues. But I, I've had conversations, Minister Shukri, the COP president, in every one of the meetings, he impromptu called in protesters from the street. We did that in Copenhagen, in the ministerial. We were in a meeting room, And we heard them and we asked them to come in and they chose you know, a bunch of them and they came in and the minister chatted with them at length. In Bonn, the loss and damage protesters, if anyone was there at those negotiations, they were in the hallway and I mentioned to him, I said, you just missed the big protest. He said, can we meet them? And they came in and we had a civilized conversation about we're not on two sides of the fence. It's not adversarial. This is about, as I keep calling it, an existential threat. So we need to stop throwing rocks at each other, and we need to find the win-win ability to move forward. Pressure coming from civil society is something I personally welcome on governments, on industries, on everyone to do more and to be better. That is acceptable, of course, and and even required part of the process if we're going to solve this uh, existential threat.
1: You've talked about the pain and difficulty at the final days of Glasgow when some disappointing action on loss and damage where the language around coal was watered down from, you know, phase out to phase down. Imagine it's the day after COP27 ends. What would you what would make you look back and say that was a success?
2: You can imagine how many times I've been asked this question. <laughs> And the more I think about it, the more I I stress this sentence. Cops are not events. They're part of a process. So we pick up from where the last cop ended, and it is our obligation to humanity to go full speed on every one of the tracks and make progress relative to where we were. And we're responsible for a few months before and the year after, so to speak, And then we're going to hand it over to the next, and they will hand it over to the next. This is an ongoing process. As an individual host country, I would hope that on the four issues that I mentioned, we have meaningful progress. Again, this is the negotiations on the mitigation work program, on meaningful progress that can be captured on the global goal on adaptation, something to show the world that we take seriously the issue of loss and damage finance, and something about finance conundrum. Those are the negotiating sides. But the outside part is really on the short term, where I will be very proud if we successfully launch the the grouping of adaptation-related initiatives that we're putting together with some important international partners for Africa, something good on loss and damage. The global shield, I mentioned, this is the outside, and some breakthroughs on the uh, energy side.
1: Ambassador Weil Abumad is Special Representative of the COP27 President. Ambassador, thanks for sharing your insights and preview of COP27.
2: Thank you very much for having me and looking forward to welcoming you to what we hope will be a successful and also an enjoyable COP.
0: Climate One will be on the ground for the COP in Sharm el-Sheikh next month, so be sure to tune in to catch all our episodes from the conference. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Cologne and me, Ariana Brocious. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Thanks for listening.